This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan, coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation in Melbourne. Tonight, yet more pain for Australian borrowers as interest rates are lifted for a tenth straight time to tackle inflation. Also, the senior bureaucrat who oversaw the robo-debt rollout admits a significant oversight led to Cabinet being misled. And a controversial safe injecting room in Victoria to be made permanent, a move that's angering some in the community, but others say it'll save lives. Is it perfect? Has it been the panacea for everything in our community? And the answer is no. But for people in a beautiful city like Melbourne to lose their lives in our streets is totally unacceptable. First tonight, the Reserve Bank has raised interest rates for the 10th time in a row to 3.6%. That's the highest they've been for 11 years. The increase will put even more pressure on the more than 3 million Australians trying to pay off their mortgage. But the Reserve Bank says rates have to keep going up to bring inflation down. But despite the rate rises, inflation is still high and economists are warning the Reserve Bank's interventions could send Australia into recession by the end of the year. Angus Randall reports. In Sydney's Chinatown, locals are having less fun. Eating out less, cooking at home. Do not buy too much takeaway, just cooking at home. Yeah, we're not going out. I haven't gone out in ages, like probably months. It's so expensive. We hardly go to cinemas now. Yeah, after the interest going up. It should give the Reserve Bank hope. The RBA has raised the cash rate to 3.6% in its continued effort to push households into spending less. Rising interest rates should curb inflation, but after 10 hikes in a row, inflation remains at a level not seen since the early 90s. Dr Angela Jackson is the lead economist at Impact Economics and Policy. She says the rate rises are starting to make a difference. From both the decision today but also its rhetoric, it seems to be that there are definitely signs that it's getting what it wants. Uh, It notes that the economy has slowed, that household consumption has slowed within that and that employment growth is not looking as strong as it had been. So overall, yes, they are getting what they want and that is a slowdown in the Australian economy to take the pressure off inflation. The Reserve Bank has this one lever we keep hearing about of increasing interest rates. Are Australians reacting the way the RBA wants when that one lever is pulled? It's a really good question. Obviously, we've seen it, you know, what we'd say extreme tightening occur over the last year where interest rates have gone up from 0.1 now to 3.6%. We are seeing Australians respond potentially not as quickly as they would in other times because of that big household savings buffer uh, that they came out of the pandemic with. A borrower with a $500,000 home loan is now paying more than $1,000 extra per month than they were in May last year. And the Reserve Bank is warning of more rate rises. It says the full effect of its intervention has not yet been felt. The Reserve Bank makes decisions independent of the government. Treasurer Jim Chalmers has responded to the rate rise in Parliament. Uh, This will make life harder for many Australians who are already under the pump. Uh, This was expected, it was flagged, the markets anticipated it, but it will still sting. The RBA says it wants to keep inflation between 2 and 3%. It currently stands at 7.8%. 
If there are no more surprises, it could hit this target by the middle of 2025. But not everything is in the Reserve Bank's control. Independent economist Nikki Hutley says the RBA has to be careful. Too many rate rises could slow the economy to the point of recession. We know the economy is slowing and these things will feed through. So you want to be very careful. They've acknowledged it's a very narrow path to avoiding recession. And I think, you know, with this latest 10th rise, the path got just even narrower. Uh, and, you know, we have to have to face the fact that recession later in the year is a risk. She warns as consumer spending keeps falling, some sectors, including entertainment, will be hit harder than others. Yeah, it's interesting the, where people spend their money when times are tight. It's a good time to be in chocolate bars and lipstick from past history because people like little treats but not big treats. And we know, of course, those sectors have done it most tough in COVID are going to do it tough again as the economy slows further and people have to do more uh, belt tightening. The Reserve Bank will meet again in April to discuss a further rate rise. That report from Angus Randall and Rachel Hayter. To the robo-debt Royal Commission now, and one of the key bureaucrats in charge of developing the policy has admitted she submitted a document to Cabinet which was misleading. Catherine Campbell, who was the Secretary of the Department of Human Services at the time the policy was introduced, says she didn't feel any pressure from government ministers to remove a crucial detail about the scheme's lawfulness from that document, and she doesn't know why the document, which went from her department to Cabinet, was altered. But she's told the Royal Commission she takes full responsibility for the change. Rachel Mealy has more. In late 2014, a proposal which was to become the robo-debt policy was being drawn up by public servants in the departments of Human Services and Social Services. Catherine Campbell, who was the Secretary of the Department of Human Services, says she saw many drafts of the document, but she says she didn't check the final version that went to Parliament House, in which a major change to the policy had been made. Is it your evidence that a document was capable of misleading a subcommittee of Cabinet went unnoticed by you despite your earlier involvement in those briefings? Yes. And is that because you didn't pay close attention to the document? I cannot recall why I didn't notice it. The document was changed to indicate that a welfare recipient's income could be assessed by using a system of averaging rather than a fortnightly review of income. That use of averaging to allege debts against a welfare recipient was illegal. The Social Security Act expressly says it's a method that can't be used. Catherine Campbell now acknowledges that the document misled Cabinet. And you're saying that the drafting of this document to the extent that it is misleading, was not the result of any pressure placed on you by ministers to progress the measure to the ERC? No, there was no pressure. And so do you then take responsibility uh, for the drafting of this document which had its origins in your department? As the secretary, I was responsible for what happened within the department. I did not notice the change in the drafting. Other witnesses to the Royal Commission have testified that public servants in those departments were under pressure to get the policy up and running. Counsel assisting the Royal Commission, Justin Gregory, put to Catherine Campbell that because of that pressure, the need for legislative change relating to the policy was glossed over. Another view of the way in which it arrived um, does not involve inadvertence. It involves a considered decision by your department to change language without changing substance 
so as to avoid the need to identify legislative change was required to introduce the measure. What do you say to that? I do not agree with that. Catherine Campbell told the Royal Commission she never intended to mislead the government. If, as you are putting to me, that the department sought to mislead, if that was the case, and I have never been in a department that has sought to mislead the government, and nor have I ever been involved in an operation that seeks to mislead the government. Former head of the Department of Human Services, Catherine Campbell, ending that report from Rachel Mealy. China's new foreign minister has sent a warning to the US over its policy on Taiwan and declined to rule out conflict in the years ahead. Speaking at his first press conference as minister, Qin Gun also addressed concerns China might help arm Russian troops in Ukraine. For more on this, I spoke to our East Asia correspondent, Bill Bertels, who's in Taipei. Bill, the new foreign minister was asked about the concerns of some US military figures that China might make a move on Taiwan by 2027. What did he have to say in response? Well, Sam, Chin Gung uh, didn't directly address that timetable that a few US military figures have raised, but he did quite theatrically get out a copy of China's uh, constitution or law book and read out to the audience that Taiwan is a sacred, inseparable part of China, and that according to the anti-secession law, uh, anybody who violates that law, uh, China reserves the right to use other measures to uh, deal with them and to resolve this issue. So he did say that, in his words, Chinese on both sides of the Taiwan Strait wish for peaceful reunification, which is uh, what Beijing says when it means a takeover of Taiwan by the Chinese government. Um, But of course, sticking with standard Chinese practice, he wouldn't rule out the possible use of force. Then he pretty much blamed uh, all the tension in the Taiwan Strait, uh, both on Taiwan, what he calls Taiwan separatists, which is code for Taiwan's democratically elected government that doesn't want to do exactly what Beijing wants it to do, uh, but also he blamed it uh, on the US. Here's a taste of what Qin Gang had to say. The Chinese people have every right to ask, why does the US talk at length about respecting sovereignty and territorial integrity on Ukraine while disrespecting China's sovereignty and territorial integrity on the Taiwan question? Why does the US ask China not to provide weapons to Russia while it keeps selling arms to Taiwan? And Bill, what did Qin Gang have to say about the prospect of China sending equipment to Russian forces in Ukraine? Well, he wouldn't rule out this specific allegation that the Biden administration has made that uh, China's government, led by Xi Jinping, is considering sending some types of arms or ammunition to Russian forces. At no point has anyone from the Chinese government explicitly said that won't happen. Uh, But Qin Gang uh, said that uh, the US is the one uh, pouring fuel on the fire by uh, arming Ukraine and therefore wanting the conflict to be prolonged. Uh, And he said that China stands for peace China stands for dialogue. So the messaging publicly, at least, was that, no, uh, you know, China's not going to help arm the Russians. But Beijing never explicitly says that. And in terms of the relationship with Russia, 
Tin Gung also said that uh, surely the ties between China and Russia will only go from strength to strength. That's the ABC's East Asia correspondent Bill Bertle speaking to me from Taipei. This is PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. You can hear all our programs live or later on the ABC Listen app. Victoria's first supervised drug injecting room is to be made permanent after it was found to have saved the lives of dozens of people. The controversial North Richmond site in Inner Melbourne allows people to inject drugs safely and access other services like mental health support. It's one of only two supervised injecting rooms in the country. But while the project has its supporters, some neighbours say the centre is ruining the area. Bridget Fitzgerald reports. August 11, 2016. That's the day Loretta Gabriel's son, Sam O'Donnell, died from a heroin overdose in Melbourne. If he had a safe place to to use heroin when he did relapse, um, he might have had a chance of living a life. He would have been 34 today. Sam had just been released from a detox facility and was waiting to get a place at a rehab centre in New South Wales. The day he died, he received a call to say there wasn't a place yet and he'd have to delay his treatment. He couldn't fight the urge that day and he shot out of um, our home and took the bus and the train from regional Geelong to um, Richmond where he knew he could always easily acquire heroin and um, always acquire a clean uh, fix, needles, etc. and found the laneway in Little Lithgow Lane and used his heroin. Because he was so clean, he overdosed and died and uh, that was the end of my son. Sam was just a few hundred metres from where a medically supervised injecting room for drug users would be opened two years later in 2018. That site in the inner city Melbourne suburb of North Richmond will become permanent after a five-year trial. Legislation will be introduced to Parliament to ensure the facility is ongoing. Premier Daniel Andrews. Stories of people dying in laneways and gutters, stories of literally dead bodies throughout that local community meant that we needed to do something different. The decision comes after an independent review of the facility found that more than 6,000 overdoses had been treated at the site and 63 deaths had been prevented. Uh, Is it universally popular in any cohort within the North Richmond community? I expect not. The review, authored by public health researcher John Ryan, found some local residents strongly opposed the location of the facility. Local resident Christine Maynard says the site attracts drug users. A resident of the area for 27 years, Christine Maynard says she fears for her safety and that of her child. I find it just absolutely disgusting that this has been allowed to happen. Opposition leader John Pesuto says the government hasn't considered objections by local residents about the location of the facility, which is next to a primary school. People have been crying out for months and even years about the inappropriateness of putting a facility like this next to a primary school. But there are also residents who led a campaign to establish the safe injecting site. Judy Ryan moved to Richmond in 2012 from regional Victoria and was shocked at the level of drug use in the streets. For people in a beautiful city like Melbourne to lose their lives in our streets is totally unacceptable and I am really grateful 
today that the announcement has been made that that trial is now going to be a permanent facility. Drug and alcohol epidemiologist Professor Paul Dietz is the co-program director of disease elimination at the Burnett Institute. He's conducted research into the North Richmond facility and the only other supervised injecting room in Australia at Sydney's King's Cross. We showed that there was a reduction in non-fatal overdoses attended by ambulance in people who used the facility, which was a clear demonstration of the effectiveness of it. We also showed really clearly that the facility is attracting the um, people who are experiencing the most vulnerabilities and marginalisations. They're the ones who use the facility the most and that's a really important function that the facilities serve. Loretta Gabriel's son Sam became an addict at 17 after he was sexually abused as a child. She says creating a safe place for drug users to inject gives them a chance. With a facility where you can use heroin safely while you uh, on a path to seeking out recovery and better health and social support, it means they won't be so dependent on health services forever because it means hopefully they'll be able to become clean and contribute to a, a better social um, outcome for everyone. Loretta Gabriel, her son Sam, died of a heroin overdose. She was speaking to our reporter, Bridget Fitzgerald. To the Northern Territory now, and in an extraordinary move, the Director of Public Prosecutions there has had to withdraw a charge of abuse of office against the Territory's Children's Commissioner in the middle of her trial because of insufficient evidence. It's been one of the Territory's most high-profile cases in recent times because of the Commissioner Colleen Gwynne's leading role in pressuring authorities to fix failures in the youth detention and child protection systems. Here's Jane Barden with more. For five years, Colleen Gwynne was a tough watchdog, hurrying the NT government and police to improve responses to young people in detention and care, particularly before and after the 2017 NT Royal Commission into Detention Abuse. Can we put a hand on our heart and say we are satisfied that our children are safe? I'm not sure we can. When a two-year-old Aboriginal girl whose family was known to child protection authorities was raped in Tennant Creek in 2018, she gave searing recommendations on government and police failings. It was foreseeable that that baby would be harmed um, if left in that environment. While working as an NT police officer, she made headlines as the lead investigator who helped convict the outback killer of Peter Falconio in 2005. Today, as she was found not guilty of abuse of office, she hit back. This case started uh, nearly three years ago. At no stage have I ever been interviewed by investigators. Key witnesses who would have demonstrated my innocence were never spoken to. The humiliation and victimisation to which I've been subjected merely for doing my job is something I had to endure in silence. The DPP told the court that it needed to withdraw the charges against her because of insufficient evidence. The Crown alleged that Ms Gwynne had abused her office by attempting to interfere in recruitment processes for an acting deputy commissioner position in her office in 2018 and 2019 to help a friend into the job. It also alleged she held malice for Nicole Hux, who had acted as the deputy commissioner and had also applied for the permanent job. When Nicole Hux complained to the NT's Public Employment Commissioner, he referred the matter to the NT police, who bugged Ms Gwynne's office. 
The court heard Ms Gwynne called Ms Hucks a racist derogatory term sometimes used for an Aboriginal woman. Ms Hucks is currently acting in the Children's Commissioner's role after Ms Gwynne had stepped down on leave to fight the charge. Today, Ms Gwynne apologised. I acknowledge those words were extremely offensive. I'm mortified that I ever express my anger and frustration in that way. I apologise to those who were hurt by my words. Those people who know me will confirm that this is just not who I am. The DPP had argued it just needed to convince the jury. Ms Gwynne had arbitrarily interfered in the recruitment process. Ms Gwynne's defence argued that the DPP would have to prove Ms Gwynne intended to do it to advantage her friend, and not just that she wanted the best candidate for the job. After the judge ruled on this, the DPP withdrew its charges. Colleen Gwynne didn't stop to answer hanging questions, including if she'll return as Children's Commissioner or take legal action against the NT government. I will ask now that my privacy be respected while I take time to consider my future. The ABC asked the acting Children's Commissioner Nicole Hux for her reaction. The DPP told the ABC it didn't want to comment. NT Chief Minister Natasha Files. It would be inappropriate to comment without all the facts before me. Ms Gwynne was appointed when John Elfrink was the former CLP government's Attorney General. He's not surprised by today's outcome. This has been a very surprising prosecution from the get-go. I would have been very surprised if Ms Gwynne had done anything untoward on the basis of my experience with her professional conduct. The fact that this has been pursued as aggressively as it has been demonstrates that there was a clear intent to prosecute this to the full extent of the law and even then they were unable to meet that benchmark. It is my opinion, considering the harm that has been done to Ms Gwynne's reputation through this process, is that she is owed an apology. Former NT Attorney-General John Elfrink, he was talking there to Jane Barden. It appears there's some good news for Australians with a disability who need financial support. The federal government is changing the way eligibility for the disability support pension is assessed and it's expected more people will qualify for the payment as a result. But advocates say the devil is in the detail and some are worried the pension application process will still be onerous. Catherine Gregory reports. Applying for welfare payments with Centrelink can often be time-consuming and tricky, even more so if you've got a disability, mental health issue or chronic illness, and you want to get the Disability Support Pension, also known as the DSP. It's been very administrative, um, heavy and burdened for people with disability to access the Disability Support Pension. So we're also talking about people who have complex um, needs and, and, and disability. Nicole Lee is the President of People with Disability Australia. There's a lot of people navigating their way into the DSP haven't actually been able to do that and and a lot of people with disability are also on um, job seeker payments and new start payments. In fact, Australia's peak welfare group ACOS estimates more than half of the claims for the DSP are rejected and those people end up on JobSeeker. 
Just over 40% of those on JobSeeker have a disability or illness that prevents them from working consistently or applying for jobs. But the Federal Labor Government has made some changes to the application process, which come into effect next month. It's developed new impairment tables, which determines a person's eligibility for the pension. People suffering with a mental illness will be better off, according to psychologist Amanda Curran. For some years, there's been rejection of evidence letters that psychologists have provided to Centrelink to get clients approved for disability pension. So that has now changed and psychologists will be able to provide evidence. Prior to the change, only clinical psychologists and psychiatrists could provide that medical evidence. Amanda Curran, who's also Chief Services Officer with the Australian Association of Psychologists, says that was distressing for many people since psychiatrists had year-long wait lists and are expensive. Only 30% of psychologists are clinical psychologists, so the clients of the other 70% of psychologists were having access issues in getting the pension. So it's going to make things a lot better for that 70%. Natalie Wade is a disability lawyer and says the changes to the impairment tables will make a big difference. I think we're looking at a significant shift towards the impairment tables reflecting the human rights legal expectations of the government. So it still might be a lengthy and cumbersome process, we're not really sure, but from a legal perspective, the scope has been widened to better align with the human rights expectations. But the peak social services body, ACOS, says while people with mental health impairments might benefit from the changes, others are still left out. Edwina McDonald is the acting CEO. The changes that have come through through are good. They're, they're removing fully from the wording around diagnosis, treatment and, and stabilisation. But certainly for the bulk of those um, claims that we're seeing rejected, we'll need more changes in order to, to make sure that people who are experiencing chronic illness or disability are able to, to get the pension. The Minister for Social Services, Amanda Rishworth, says in a statement that she made the new impairment tables following extensive consultation and it includes relevant changes recommended in the report from the Senate inquiry into the pension. She also says the government is considering the inquiry's report. Catherine Gregory with that report. Well, as the cost of living crunch continues, one group feeling the pinch is pensioners who moved here from Britain. They still get pension payments from the country where they once lived, worked and paid tax. But despite a looming double-digit boost to the UK pension, those in Australia still get paid at the same level as when they first moved to this country. Nick Grimm has more. Sydney woman Catherine Lee knows just how hard it is to make ends meet when costs are going up and there's little coming in. You know that every dollar you spend is a dollar that's not coming back in from anywhere else because there's nowhere for it to come back from. The 72-year-old has lived on Sydney's northern beaches for close on four decades, moving to this country with her husband and young family from Britain. Their hopes of a comfortable retirement were derailed, though, when her husband died of cancer aged in his 50s. And Catherine Lee herself endured her own ill health, 
robbing her of precious years to contribute into superannuation. Now she survives with the help of a modest pension of around $125 a week, paid by the UK government because of the years she lived and worked in that country. You know, we had an expectation that when we came to retirement age, we would enjoy the benefits of the hard yards that we put in in the UK. Both my husband and I were very hard workers. We paid our dues and you expect to be able to reap the benefits of that. Trouble is, Catherine Lee's pension is not indexed to keep pace with inflation. She's like many other British nationals to move to Australia, only to see their pension payments frozen at the same level for years, with successive British governments refusing to budge on the arrangements. Here's the Minister of State for Veterans Affairs, Johnny Mercer, taking a question in the House of Commons just over two years ago. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The government has no plans to change its policy on overseas pension uprating. I feel cheated. I feel cheated. Kenneth Jeffrey is a former British Army officer, but despite his years of service around the world in His Majesty's Armed Forces, he's received around the equivalent of $100 a week since he turned 65 more than two decades ago. I should be today receiving double that amount. So that amounts to probably they've robbed me of about £30,000 or $60,000 over that period of 21 years. Rubbing salt into the wound, British Australians have seen many of their compatriots who moved to a host of countries including the United States, Israel and the Philippines receive their pensions indexed. It's a situation one former British Minister for Social Security admitted in Parliament was illogical and inconsistent. We see our pension amount the same, but its buying power going down year by year. Patrick Edwards is the president of the lobby group British Pensions in Australia. He argues taxpayers here are picking up the bill for those unable to survive on their British payments, many of whom will qualify for the Australian pension if they've resided in this country for more than 10 years. Well, because the Australian taxpayer is subsidising the UK because of this policy. Critically, what it comes down to is Albo has to give Rishi Sunak a call and say, look, end this, start treating Australians the same way as you treat people in other countries. Patrick Edwards, the president of British Pensions in Australia, Nick Grimm, our reporter there. And in a statement to PM, a spokesman for the Department of Social Services said the federal government regards the UK policy as unfair to people in Australia. The ABC also understands that Australia's Minister for Social Services, Amanda Rishworth, has written to her UK counterpart asking the British government to reconsider its policy. Thanks for joining me for PM. I'm Samantha Don. We'll be back at the same time tomorrow. Good night. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily podcast. An investigation has found that holes in the Perth Mint's compliance regime could have left it open to money laundering. Today, Four Corners reporter Angus Grigg on why that could end up costing taxpayers millions of dollars. Look for the ABC News Daily podcast on the ABC Listener. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.